welcome to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. You'll enjoy conversations with amazing changemakers, solutionaries, and social innovators who have all taken the path from local citizen to global changemaker. They do so by working to change the system that creates the world's most challenging issues. We structure these interviews around the Blue Roads slogan, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world, and ask participants to tell us about their origins, their work to address issues in their communities, how they've engaged with others different from themselves, and how they've used these experiences to make the leap to changemakers addressing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As their host, I try hard to take myself out of the conversation as much as possible, that is, after introducing participants, so you won't notice the typical back and forth of the interview process. I hope this will be helpful to you to hear the stories as a complete narrative that addresses all four quadrants of the Blue Roads Changemaker journey, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. In part three of our Changemaker interview with community activist Penny Franklin, she talks about her patchwork, her perspective on working with people different from herself. Even going back as a child and watching folks, um, I was born in 58, so some of my early years were watching uh, the Black people in the community work through the civil rights issues Mm -hmm. and seeing white faces, you know, at that time, Mm -hmm. these didn't register with me, but I knew that -hmm. there were people out there and I heard names who were talked about in the community as being allies and who helped to move things. So I've always understood that we don't do things alone. Mm -hmm. And when you live in a community where the population of African-Americans is so small and the mindset can be of somewhat helplessness or not understanding how you bring about change. There's the fear of your comfort, ability to survive among all these white people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't want to mess that up. There are many things that, like I said, my mother, her coming in and not having that same background as being raised in the South had a huge influence on me as to you work with whoever. When the community group first was formed, it was it's an African-American civic organization. And our goal was to work with all the other African-American organizations in the churches to help monitor the governing bodies and to kind of be a clearinghouse to say, okay, so this is what's going on here. This is what's going on there. And to get folks from the other organizations to send a couple of members so that we could take turns. So it wasn't a big burden on just a small group of people to get engaged and to understand what was going on in the community. Well, after several years of us trying and trying and trying, to really engage with the African-American community and other organizations, and it just wasn't really working, 
we as a community group just said, threw our hands up and said, we're going to work with whoever's going to work with us. Mm-hmm. And Andy Morikawa, mm-hmm. Andy Morikawa is one of the most unsung heroes in mm-hmm. the New River Valley. Mm-hmm. The connections that he has made with community, he he is that seamstress of a patchwork, of this patchwork. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, we have got to do something to, to raise Andy up. From the moment I saw him, I remember that moment, him coming down the stairs at the old school board office, with his backpack on his shoulder. And I remember seeing him. I didn't know who he was, had never seen him before. And it was immediate to me, we're going to be good friends. With him working through the, with the diversity form and then becoming part of the community group. He was one of the founding members and with the New Mountain Climbers and him helping to connect me with folks in the community who were like-minded and had worked with my mother and other folks in the community in the 60s and 70s it was it just fell into place mm-hmm. um it, it just never dawned on me that you, you work in isolation mm-hmm. you, know, mm-hmm. you can't do that because then you'll just be isolated you, nothing nothing will change and if it does it will probably take a long time so for me it you know, especially in this community where you're surrounded by white people all the time, you know, in high school, mm-hmm. on um, athletic teams, in the classroom, and whatever you did, you were engaged with white people. Mm-hmm. And because of that whole thing during integration, where I was separated from the rest of the black community because of where we lived at, we were out in we lived out in the county. It wasn't easy. We weren't in the the typical black community where you had, you know, neighborhood where folks mm-hmm. were all around you. We were out in the country. Mm-hmm. So being able to literally go over the hill, mm-hmm. uh, and that hill I talk about is um, the hill that Schaefer Memorial and the Christian Bird Community Center mm-hmm. was on, which at one time was called Zion Hill. Right. Mm-hmm. That was like a, a barrier for mm-hmm. for me to be connected with the black community. I tell people I was almost 40 years old before I realized what it really meant to be black. Because I had just assimilated into mm-hmm. the white culture, which can happen. Right. Sure. The, there were black kids who called me Oreo, mm-hmm. uh, which I had to ask one of my white kids, white kids, is that mm-hmm. kind of the same thing of being called uh, Uncle Tom or something because mm-hmm. I had never heard that expression before and I had to have a white person tell me uh, yeah <laughs> so um, I was seen as a little different from with some of the folks in the African-American community I was introverted so I stayed to myself I was somewhat separated I just kind of was did my own kind of thing didn't care about what people thought or whatever mm-hmm. so Working with other people or being with other people in this community uh, is easy. If um, had grown up, you know, in a community where the population was maybe even 20%, this conversation might be different. Mm -hmm. But because I had always worked with white people, 
in some way or another, whether athletically or classroom or mm-hmm. this is who this is who we are. Right. So you find people who are like minded right. and you work together. It's, yeah. it's, it's just that simple. It, it has to happen. You know, during the civil rights movement, it was particularly white women who helped mm-hmm. with the uh, bus strike, Underground Railroad. I mean, it, if it to me is is as natural as walking and breathing. Mm-hmm. We work together. We're all mm-hmm. human beings. So you just find people who are like minded, and you work with them, and helping folks understand a different point of view. Because many times, if there's if there has been no one sitting at the table, or they haven't been engaged with anyone in the African American community. Um, and she said, you think you're doing the best and the right things, but if you don't know what you don't know, you right. just don't know it. Exactly. So I don't hold things against people too much until they know what they know and then they don't do it. I guess, you know, I kind of, uh, again, go back to that, my uh, education and just the time period that I was born the opportunities weren't necessarily always there for African Americans, and not getting the, that good foundation in early education to feel like I could even go or want to go on to higher education. It's it's what has made me what I who I am, mm-hmm. and sometimes not knowing <laughs> that you know, say like ignorance is bliss. Is bliss. So sometimes not understanding that me saying things and me pushing things in certain places, um, not necessarily, you know, that's, you know, kind of being pushy or inappropriate Mm. or we're going to mess up some things if we keep telling people, you know, that they need to do something different and why. I don't know any better. Right? Yeah. So, so this is what you yeah. do. Yeah. Um, so uh, ignorance for me, I say in, in some ways uh, to those uh, formal kinds of um, processes and mm-hmm. ways of doing things, mm-hmm. I could care less. You know, yeah. I understand there are some things that are done certain ways. But again, there's sometimes when you push back and say, why is that always done that way? Because when we do it that way, we're excluding people from being uh, heard or feeling that they can be heard or Mm -hmm. things can change. So Mm -hmm. I get really irritated with processes and that have to be a certain way when it involves people and their feelings and their lives and their children's lives and how our community is seen because that's one of the big points that I have tried to help along with others raise as so if you're someone coming in and looking at Montgomery County Mm -hmm. and because of all the wonderful technology everybody has a website everybody has their stuff spread out everywhere but if your community looks very segregated looks very white and you say that you want to do something different, then you have to do something different. Yeah. Because when people look at Montgomery County, and this is what they see, they're like, hmm, 
I don't necessarily want to come there. That's not what I want for my children uh, Mm -hmm. to be exposed to. Um, So when folks really start hearing that and really starting are starting to understand and value the uh, importance of diversifying their organizations, their workplaces, uh, their campuses, and how that enriches them. Yes. Um, that's one of the biggest changes that we, I think that we have been able to help folks with. I was told that I was uh, compared to a bulldog. Once I get a hold of something, I'm not letting it go. And I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. Um, people have said, okay, here comes trouble. And I say, make sure you spell it with a capital T. With law enforcement, when they first started getting engaged with uh, the dialogue on race, uh, which, again, has just been amazing, the chiefs and the sheriffs, even though some have changed, that connection has happened there. But uh, Chief Wilson, the work that he has been doing and does is just amazing. Uh, Chief Sessions, our relationship, he was kind of like, he said, she's after me, right? He made that <laughs> comment one time, she's she's after me. And I had to tell him, I'm not after you, right? Yeah. I just want us to be able to have a conversation mm-hmm. and the community understand you, you understand the community and 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 how we make things better. And now mm-hmm. I, ju- I just love those guys. So it's building that trust with folks to help them understand, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not here to hurt you. But what I am here to do is to make sure other people stop hurting mm-hmm. because of things that might be going on that you right. have some control over. So nice. building that level of trust. Um, uh, I know there's a lot of people who don't care for my politics, don't care for the way I speak or whatever. But at the same time, I believe that they trust that I'm going to do the right thing and I'm not intending to hurt them or try to take something away from them, but I'm not going to stand for the status quo. Right. And if you, so they can either get out the way, get engaged, Mm -hmm. but things, she's not going to stop. Thank you, Penny. I so appreciate your openness and willingness to help people like myself who want to be allies, but sometimes don't necessarily know how to be good ones. Listeners, I hope you'll stay tuned for part four, the final portion of my conversation with Penny Franklin, to be released very soon. In part four, Penny shares with us the ripple effects of the work she's been doing and how it's influencing communities well beyond Montgomery County, Virginia. Thank you for tuning in to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. We hope you will follow our work and learn more about how you can get involved and start your own Changemaker journey. Contact us at www.blueroadseducation.org.